Welcome to the Introduction to Feminist and Social Justice Studies course. This is the 15th audio episode of the semester-long course for the Gender, Sexuality, Feminist, and Social Justice Studies program at McGill University, taking place in the fall of 2021. My name is Dr. Alex Ketchum. I'm your professor for this course. I'm joined by three teaching assistants who are graduate students at McGill University. Our teaching team will lead you through the materials of this course. Today's episode will talk about beauty culture, popular culture, and media and sports. Let's get started. Today's song is Beautiful by Mon Laferte. Mon Laferte is a Chilean singer, songwriter, actor, artist, and activist, and Latin Grammy Award winner. She has actively protested against police brutality, political exclusion, and economic inequality in Chile. At the Latin Grammy, she wrote on her chest, En Chile, torturan, violan, y matan, which translates to, In Chile, they torture, rape, and kill. In her song, Beautiful, she focuses on self-love. Speaking to Por Publimetro Colombia, she stated, Esa es la idea principal de la canción, que una pueda sentirse bien de cualquier manera. La belleza es una cosa de actitud, no necesitamos nada. This translates to, that's the main idea of the song, the one that can feel good in any way. Beauty is a thing of attitude. We do not need anything. Today's lecture will speak about beauty culture and touch on popular culture, media, and sports. That's a lot to cover. Teaching this course via podcast has been quite different than the normal lectures I've given in past years. I've had to adjust all the course materials and streamline lectures. Without visuals, I've had to adapt the materials for this course, the examples I give, and the way I present concepts. I usually teach this topic of popular culture and media with a lot of visuals and media clips. For this lecture, I plan to raise a few examples and provide you with lots of links and resources of where to explore elsewhere if this topic is of interest to you. We'll begin today by talking about beauty culture. Beauty culture is pervasive. The term beauty has a lot to unpack. Beauty standards are culturally specific and specific to a certain time period. They are gendered, racialized, and classed. Authors such as Naomi Klein, writer of the book The Beauty Myth of 1990, have argued that as the past the social power and prominence of women have increased, the pressure they feel to adhere to unrealistic social standards of physical beauty has also grown stronger because of commercial influences and mass media. Klein argues that this pressure leads to unhealthy behaviors by women and a, pre- and a preoccupation with appearance, and it compromises the ability of women to be effective in and accepted by society. Other authors argue that the preoccupation with beauty standards or the preoccupation with beauty distracts women from focusing on work, play, politics, and personal enrichment. Individuals may enjoy cosmetics and find that doing makeup, hair, and playing with fashion are a way to be creative, and that's great. However, it's important to look at the way that the idea of beauty has been used to control, discipline, and punish. It is also important to analyze what assumptions are made behind the idea of who or what is beautiful. 
The beauty industries are huge, multi-billion dollar a year industries. There's a lot of money to be made by selling cosmetics. These industries sell the idea that you need their products in order to be beautiful. The standards of beauty are quite limited. We can see the ways that racism and classism are key here. For example, we can see the ways that skin lightening products are a huge multi-billion dollar a year industry around the world. These products reinforce the beauty standard of white light skin as the ideal aesthetic. We can see the ways that cosmetic companies and popular culture harmfully promote white skin and straight hair beauty standards. This brings us to the reading for today, the introduction to Hair Matters, Beauty, Power, and Black Women's Consciousness by Ingrid Banks. This book focuses on how black women link hair to broader social and cultural ideas. Hair is linked to other differences about aesthetics and mass culture, promoting not only beauty ideals, but racialized beauty ideals. We can see how hair is tied to the politicization of black women's bodies. Banks writes, starting quote, what is deemed as desirable is measured against white standards of beauty, which include long and straight and usually blonde. That is hair that is not kinky. Consequently, black women's hair in general fits outside of what is considered desirable in mainstream society. Within black communities, straighter variety and texture are privileged as well. End quote. In the introduction, Banks chronicles the complicated history of hair and how hair shapes black women's ideas about race, gender, class, sexuality, images of beauty, and power. We can see that economic power gained through hair with Madam C.J. Walker, who is credited with inventing the straightening or pressing combs, as well as marketing several other beauty aids for African-American women. Banks talks about the politics and the choice to wear an afro, but an underlying point in her discussion is that every choice around hair for black women is in some ways political. She raises the questions, how then do black women reinforce and challenge constructions of beauty in their communities and in mainstream society? Why do some women enforce such ideas while others reject them? Why do some women reinforce these ideas as they attempt to actually subvert them? I'm now going to play audio from part of a news roundtable on How Black Hair Matters, hosted by Melissa Harris-Perry for for MSNBC in 2012. She is joined by guest professor Anthea Butler, founder of Curly Nikki, Nikki Walden, actress Nicole Ari Parker, and cultural critic Joan Morgan. I recommend watching the whole video, but I will play just a segment here due to copyright issues. The video includes auto captions. For me, black women's hair, the the politics of it seem obvious, but I realize that it may not be obvious to everyone, particularly maybe to our viewers who haven't encountered these questions before. Help me make the case for why black hair matters. It matters because it's a historical way that we have looked at each other. From the time of slavery forward, hair has been a very big deal. Whether you wore your hair in a certain kind of style, somebody took that hair away from you. When we go into the 20th century, where we have um, Madam C.J. Walker, who comes up with the process to straighten your hair. Everybody gets happy about that. And then we have uh, black women Pentecostal saying, don't straighten your hair. So when you get to the 60s and you want to do black power and you want to wear your afro, and your mother tells you you can't wear an afro. (laughs) I'm uh, 
mom, yeah. um, you know, all of those things become very political. So when we see um, natural hair, it's something very different. It seems that we're making a kind of a statement, even if we're not making a statement. It seems a political statement to those who are on the outside and to those who are in the interior. It says we want to accept ourselves the way we are, yeah. for who we are. And it feels like there's no hairstyle you can choose that isn't signaling something to somebody, right? So if you wear a relaxer, that's somehow signaling something. I, I, I just want to show the, the picture of the, the New York Times cover. We remember this, right, from the from the 2008 campaign. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, excuse me, I'm not the New York Times, the New Yorker. Uh, and there is um, there is President Barack Obama rendered here in an outfit that he actually wore in real life, right? So as problematic as this image is, there, that comes from an actual thing. Right. But then there is Michelle Obama wearing a hairstyle, which just by representing her in that way, it tells you every, that is the burning constitution. That is the, because uh, because an Afro is inherently radical somehow. Of course. Can I add yeah, on to what Anthea was saying? Um, there's, the debate comes up very often whether natural hair is political or not on curlynikki.com. And it's yes and no. So yes, um, in the fact that everything that everyone does can be seen as political, um, in that it impacts how you see the world and how others see you and how you spend your money, where you spend your money, and the social stigmas that are tied to wearing your hair natural comes from the power dynamics in our society. Society. Um, what's ironic, though, is that although we didn't put this straight hair standard, um, we didn't create the straight hair standard. It's in our control to change that, and we're doing that, I believe, by setting the example in the media with you here, you know, in, in these positions of power and leadership. Um, however, on the other side of things, it's not political in that... <laughs> Right, it's just about our lives. It's not, it's it's not, a, counter, it's not a counterculture. Yeah. Um, we're cultural leaders. This movement is made up of women that are educated and affluent um, and tech savvy. And we weren't looking to rebel. It's more about practicality. We're looking for flexibility. And it's there's... There is immediate um, results for that um, in your quality of life. So it goes from you trying to conform to a straight hair standard and your whole life revolving around your hair. You know, if you want to start a new workout routine, if you want to go to the beach, the first thing you think about is what am I going to do with, with my life. hair? So it's awesome to be able to have some flexibility and versatility. And hopefully the natural hair movement will help women achieve that. Now, Nicole, am I reading too much into this? I and mean, obviously you're, you're in the land of, of the presentation of images, right? You, right. Um, by the way, streetcar. I just we could go on all day. It's, uh, it's an extraordinary. Everyone who comes anywhere near New York should should come and see you on stage in that in that play. Um, but but it feels to me like you know is this sufficiently political? Is this just working out our emotions, or is there something is there something meaningful about? as African-American women are trying to think through our self-presentations? Well, I think that, you know, there's so many angles to, to, to analyze it. You know, in that movie, Good Hair, I think Tracy Toms, a fellow actress, she said it best, very simply. It's amazing that it's considered revolutionary to wear my hair the way it grows out of my head. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I never forgot that. Like, yeah. this is just the way it grows out of my head. Like, this is the beginning. This is my isness. Right. Exactly. Right. This is just how it is. Mm -hmm. And so, for me, I can also consider that, but I also, my hair issues change once I became a mother. Yeah. And when I have this little girl watching me undo weave braids, mm -hmm. Um, fry my hair or glue in an instant track or don't don't push mommy in the pool yep you know I was I had a wake-up call and 
But at the same time, I do appreciate versatility. Yeah. I'll, I'll blow my hair out, right, flat right. iron it. People know me for my little funky little styles or whatever. But as an actress, I have the luxury of versatility and trying new things. So I'm kind of free and unpolitical mm -hmm. in right. a way. But very personally, it's a self-esteem issue for me because I'm a, an example to my daughter. But that point about what happens in the mother-daughter piece dynamic is incredible. It's the definitive experience of little black girlhood, right? Yes. I mean, it just it really—it's the thing that we all want to start watch point. my language. Like, you mm -hmm. know, I, I, you know, we say, "Girl, come in. Your hair is a mess. Sit down. Let me get yep. through this head of yours." Right. Yep. And and we say it in loud. We say it in front of their friends. They say it, "Girl, I can't believe you are not walking out." All this language, or, or the hours that you spend sitting and. Yes. And if it hurts, you're tenderheaded exactly. and you're you're overly my hair, emotional. My daughter's and... hair takes forever to do. Yep. Yes, but when I do it, I am so uh, um, positive. I tell mm -hmm. her how beautiful it is mm -hmm. and how lucky she is, and oh my gosh, you can do so many things. And I mean, and and she's in a school where you know she's one of two in yeah. her class. Wow. Yeah. Yep. And so, but she loves herself. But I had to work on that. Yeah, and it's interesting that it goes back in part to your point about, you know, this is, this isn't just about, uh, or this isn't fundamentally a class issue. In fact, to the extent of the class, class issue, it may be in part about folks who find themselves in integrated settings for the, you know, exactly. in many ways who are trying to manage these identities. Joan, I feel like so much of your work has been around black women's identities and politics. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so much of that, of our identities, of our self-understandings, is right here, is in the top of our heads. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I, um, I think that the very question, um, uh, is black hair political, gives us too limited um, an analytical framework, mm -hmm. because there's, there are multiple conversations going on. Right now, I, I, I think that the mainstream media's obsession with the transitioning movement. I mean, transitioning is such an interesting word, right? Because when I think of transition, I think of people dying or I think of vampires. So <laughs> we're talking about moving from yeah. one state yeah. into another And so let's state. be clear for folks who don't know, the transitioning movement is this movement from using chemicals in your hair right. to not using them, which we'll talk more about right. uh, with you, uh, Nikki. What's amazing is our hair is so versatile, you don't even need the chemicals. Right. right. But exactly. I think that black women's bodies are always in conversation. Yeah. the larger society. I think that black women's bodies are always in conversation with black men. So I think that the choices that we make, the ones, it's really the first layer is what do these so quote unquote radical choices mean? Mine is not that radical. I'm really lazy when it comes to hair. So every <laughs> once in a while, actually three hours before your producer called, I had just stepped out of the barber's chair. Right, right. Summer, I just don't want to do anything. Yeah. That is the reason for this. If you start with, hey, Nubian queen, you've already missed the boat. It really has like, nothing <laughs> yeah. to do with that. But I do think that there's, it's not just how we feel about our hair. It's how we think black men feel about right. our hair. Yep. It's, it's, are we going to be desirable hires? Are we yep. going to be desirable and, lovers? And so from this roundtable, a few key points are raised that also touch on some of the points Banks was making too. How is hair political? What does it mean when the hair that grows from your head is seen as political, no matter what choices a person makes about it? What kinds of hair is viewed as professional. These are the themes also explored in Dr. Ebony Flowers' comic book, Hot Comb, to which I have linked to in the transcript for more information. We can see the ways that beauty is gendered and racialized. We can also see the ways that the fashion industry is exploitative. Fast fashion, 
is a process in which inexpensive clothing is produced rapidly by mass market retailers in response to the latest trends and it's rife with problems. The system relies on low wage labor and harsh working conditions in dangerous factories which employ or enslave women and children to produce cheap clothing which is sold en masse. The system relies on labor exploitation, dangerous working conditions, and often harmful chemicals that are bad for the environment. The high pesticide use in cotton growing in order to produce fast fashion clothes that break quickly and are thrown away and fill landfills is part of an exploitative system that harms humans and the environment. And this is all part of a beauty and fashion industry that uses marketing and media in order to sell the lie that buying these products will make a person feel fulfilled. Women that are often held to being seen as the as only valuable based on their appearance and clothing, which was the impetus for the Ask Her More campaign, in which women wanted red carpet reporters to ask all actors, regardless of gender, about their process and work, rather than spending the whole time asking women actors about the clothes they wear and their male co-stars questions about their methods. For more information on the topic of beauty culture, I recommend the Calology beauty standards episode on the podcast ologies hosted by ali ward when she interviews psychologist dr renee ungen who is the author of the book beauty sick i've linked to the 2018 interview in the transcript that podcast also comes with transcripts so to use the terms of michel foucault that we talked about in an earlier episode where there is power there is resistance We can see women resisting stereotypes and beauty pressures throughout the time periods we have looked at through this course. Whether it was women refusing to wear or choosing to wear dresses, women refusing to or choosing to straighten their hair, or women refusing to or choosing to wear makeup, all these choices in particular contexts can have political meanings. Different groups of women face different stereotypes and different pressures, and thus resistance will be different. All of this is to say, that body positivity movements also are not new. We can see roots in the 1970s feminism, for example. We can see this in Judy Free Spirit and Alberin's 1973 Fat Liberation Manifesto, which pushes against narrow standards of bodies. In November 1973, Judy Free Spirit and Aldebaran published the Fat Liberation Manifesto on behalf of the Fat Underground. The Fat Underground was an organization that acted as a catalyst in the creation and mobilization of the fat liberation movement. Many of its members were radical feminists and lesbians. Based in LA in the 1970s, the fat underground did not fight to change discriminatory laws, but rather discriminatory thoughts and practices in different aspects of society. These discriminatory practices included those of doctors and other health professionals who perpetuate the unhealthy habits encouraged by diet culture. G.D. Spirit and Aldebaran pioneering members of the fat underground designed these seven points to solidify the desires of the fat liberation movement and ended with a call to action the manifesto first establishes that fat people are entitled to what they were denied on a daily basis human respect and recognition the other objectives then outline the commercial exploitation of fat bodies by both corporations and scientific institutions this manifesto marked a key point in fat liberation in the fat liberation movement because it was one of the first times there's a public call for unification of fat women and fat people under one common purpose. The rhetoric dictated in this manifesto set the tone for the movement. We can see different ways in which feminists have accepted and rejected different scripts around beauty culture. 
as today's song by Mon Laferte talks about, there's power in self-love, and that is not something that you that can be bought, that you can buy. There's power in this discourse. There is power in this discourse of self-love, body positivity, and cherishing oneself, free from the confines of consumerism. However, we can also see how this movement gets co-opted by companies trying to make money off of it. We can see advertisements using the language of body positivity and empowerment in order to make money off of it. The Dove soap ads are a good example of this co-optation. As we move into the next part of the lecture, I want us to think about how when we talk about the connection between feminism and the media and popular culture, we are talking about what it means to remake a sexist, racist, and classist landscape. We will see two tactics. The first is the try to remake the system that already exists and the fight for inclusion, diversity, and change from within the system. The other tactic is to leave the mainstream or dominant system and create alternative cultural materials. We can also see, like with body positivity movements, the ways in which these subcultural materials and countercultural materials can get co-opted by the very entities that they are fighting against or trying to avoid. At the heart of all of this is narrative telling and hearing stories, whether that's through the medium of film, comic books and graphic novels, music, art, dance, and more. What I hope you get out of this part of the lecture is that one, representation is important. Two, representation is important behind and in front of the camera, mic, etc. Three, representation is not the only thing that matters. And four, exploitation and co-opting of social movement work is a problem. So I will talk about both feminist and alternative media and the problems in the ways that women are represented in mainstream media and issues of gender representation. These issues are classed and racialized. Journalist Katie Couric says that, starting quote, the media can be an instrument of change. It can maintain the status quo and reflect the views of the society, and it can, hopefully, awaken people and change their minds. I think this depends on who's piloting the plane, end quote. She said this as part of her work for the Misrepresentation Project. In 2011, the film Misrepresentation showed many of the problems in mainstream media, including the hypersexualization of women, the lack of roles for women that allowed for complex characters, and the lack of representation behind the camera. The organization Misrepresentation continues to release reports on women in media. The misrepresentation organization shows the ways that media is selling the idea that girls and women's value lies in their youth, beauty, and sexuality, and not in their capacity as leaders. Boys learn that their success is tied to dominance, power, and aggression. We must value people as whole beings, not gendered stereotypes. End quote. They have since released other research reports, films, and programs to train women and girls in media production. They operate under the premise that you can't be what you can't see. The Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media, to which I linked in the transcript, also does research and reports on media and representations examining six identities, gender, race, LGBTQ plus identities, disability, age, and body size. They look at representation in films, TV, and advertisements. These reports provide quantitative data for the lack of diverse representation in popular culture. They also build off of the work of Laura Mulvey and her essay, Visual Pleasure and the Narrative Cinema, which was published in 1975 and which popularized the idea of the male gaze. In her essay, Mulvey states in film, women are typically the objects rather than the possessors of gaze because the control of the camera and thus the gaze 
comes from factors such as the assumption of heterosexual men as the default target audience for most film genres. While this was more true in the time it was written when Hollywood protagonists were overwhelmingly male, the base concept of men as watchers and women as watchers still applies today, despite the growing number of movies targeted towards women and that feature female protagonists. We can also see this concept in the Bechdel test. Have you heard of it before, the Bechdel test? The Bechdel test comes from the serial comic Dykes to Watch Out For by Alison Bechdel, author of Fun Home, which Bechdel wrote from 1983 to 2008, so for 25 years. Bechdel wrote the 1985 comic The Rule, based on her friend Liz Wallace, who had three rules about going to a movie. I've included the comic in the transcript. I also highly recommend reading Bechdel's work. I'm a huge fan of her comics. So in this comic that we see, the Bechdel test, also known as the Bechdel-Wallace test, is a measure of the representation of women in fiction. It asks whether a work features at least two women who talk to each other about something other than a man. The requirement that the two women must be named is sometimes added. Sometimes people say that the characters need to talk for more than 30 seconds. It can't just be a woman ordering coffee from a barista. Ever since, new tests have been formulated, such as the sexy lamp test, which states if you can replace your female character with a sexy lamp and the story still basically works, maybe you need another draft. Other tests have been formulated based on sexual orientation and race. Other tests are possible to look at the lack of representation of folks with disabilities in film and television. The Bechdel test doesn't say whether or not a film is feminist. It's an extremely low bar, and that's the point. The reason the Bechdel-Wallace test is so powerful is because even though it's the lowest bar, so few films can pass it, even if the standard is just ordering a cup of coffee. Some independent movie theaters in Sweden will say if films pass the test on the marquee next to the radium. The power in this test is that we can see how many films are centered on men's stories and men's needs. The related tests that have come since the Bechdel-Wallace test show that most of film is based around white straight men's stories. We can also see a lack of representation behind the camera and in the writer's room. This matters because this influences the kinds of stories that can be told. No one story or film can speak to everyone and all experiences. That's why we need a wide variety of producers, directors, writings, casting directors, camera operators, cinematographers, performers, sound designers, and more. We see pushes and change in changes in representation in the film industry and lots of pushback too. We can also see similar issues in the music industry. We often learn a whitewashed history of music. We rarely hear stories about folk singers such as the Dead of Holmes, who was called the Queen of American Folk Music by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and was influential to many other artists, including Bob Dylan, who cited her as the reason he got into folk movement. She often performed at political rallies and demonstrations, including the 1963 March on Washington, leading her music to be called the soundtrack of the civil rights movement. We often hear about punk music as being the music of white men, yet Polly Styrene of the band X-Ray Specs was a black woman and an important figure in 1977 with her song, Oh Bondage, Up Yours. I've included a link in the transcript to a comic that discusses the history of queer people and people of color in the development of punk music. Since punk was born out of marginalization, women, people of color, and queer people were key in its early development. Yet the groups that gained more fame and financial support were white bands that were all men, with movements like Riot Girl, as discussed in the first lecture, 
When girls and women were reclaiming space within punk scenes in the 1990s, the emphasis was usually on white women. Racism in the punk scene continues to be a problem. So it's been the work of feminist music historians to reclaim, rediscover, and uncover these histories. The music industry and mainstream histories that we hear about music get whitewashed and women's contributions get marginalized or pushed out. Independent labels and independent artists try to work outside of the mainstream industry, which can allow for more diverse voices and representations, yet we see issues of classism and racism within the mainstream and independent music industries. This tension of creating independent content versus representation in the mainstream can also be seen in the history of feminism and journalism, with feminists creating independent feminist periodicals and women working to be hired in large newspapers. We can see this divide with feminists creating feminist presses and small presses, and feminists working to get their books published by large publishing houses. We can see the history of zines, with individuals or small collectives writing or typing materials, photocopying them, and doing small-scale distribution. The rise of the internet led to the creation of feminist blogs. We can also see the tensions of creating independent content or trying to be included in the mainstream publications in basically every form of media. Within the art world, there's the push for women to take up cultural space. Documentaries such as Women Art Revolution chronicle the feminist art movement in the United States. I link to the trailer in the transcripts. Feminist art historians have sought to recover histories of women artists. Groups like Guerrilla Girls, founded in 1985 in New York, with the mission bringing gender and racial inequality into focus within the greater arts community, point to this. This group of feminist artists is devoted to fighting sexism and racism within the art world. To remain anonymous, members wear gorilla masks and use pseudonyms that refer to deceased women artists. The group employs culture jamming in the form of posters, books, billboards, and public appearances to expose discrimination and corruption. They've had their own issues regarding representation and tokenism within their own group, however. You may have seen the infamous poster which states, do women have to be naked to get into the Met Museum? Less than 5% of artists in the modern art section are women, but 85% of the nudes are female. On the poster, on the poster, a gorilla head is posted on top of a naked woman's body. These movements are about taking up cultural space and having representation. Issues of representation and inclusion and inclusion in museums continues to be a problem. The collections in museum, of museums continue to be dominated by artists who are white men. In a rare move, the Baltimore Museum decided in 2018 to sell some of its blue chip art to buy more work by, upper, under, by underrepresented artists. This is quite a rare move, as curators and museum directors continue to be predominantly white. In 2019, Shadria Labouvier became the first black curator the first black woman and the first person of Cuban descent to curate an exhibition in the Guggenheim's 80-year history, as well as the first black author of a Guggenheim catalog for the exhibition, Basquiat's Defacement, The Untold Story. She has publicly criticized the racism she experienced during her time there. There are so many aspects of the intersections between art, sexism, and racism that we could discuss. For more on representation and art and beyond, I recommend looking at the work of McGill PhD candidate Ayana Dozier in Art History and Communications as she focuses on, 
on embodiment, blackness, sexuality, and performance within art, comics, and cinema. She is currently a fellow at the Whitney Museum and an adjunct professor at Fordham University. I link to her work in the transcript. The final point I want to touch on in this lecture is representation in sports. Sports media is a huge market. Women athletes in most sports get paid significantly less than their male counterparts. For example, the U.S. women's soccer team is the most successful in international women's soccer, winning four women's World Cup titles, including the first women's World Cup in 1991, four Olympic gold medals, and eight CONCACAF gold cups. Despite this winning record, however, the players are paid significantly less than the men's team, which has not reached the same level of success. The players have waged an escalating legal fight with the United States Soccer Federation over gender discrimination. Central to their demands is equal pay. The players point to their lower paychecks as compared to the U.S. men's national team, despite their higher record of success in recent years. Another example is that it, until last year, it was commonplace for women surfers to receive half the prize money of their male counterparts. It wasn't until last year that the World Surf League announced that male and female competitors would be, be paid equitably in all WSL events. The top tier pro surf tour in 2019 was one of the only US-based sports requiring equal pay for men and women. Contracts for women basketball players in the WNBA are so much smaller than contracts in the NBA. Women hockey players, when the CWHL was around, rarely got paid and it was definitely not women living wages. Most women athletes have to work second jobs, giving them less time to practice their sport, which makes it harder to advance and harder to get sponsorships. There's so many issues to talk about with representation in sport, including but not limited to equal pay, the creation of Title IX in the United States, which paved the way for the development of main girls and women's sports programs, issues over broadcasting of games, tournaments, and competitions, the challenges intersex athletes face, and the gender policing by regulatory groups in sports, and the benefits to sport and dance programs. Today's lecture could have been broken into five individual lectures or even five separate courses. I want to introduce you to these ideas so that you can build on them in your future work. Look to the Art History and Communications Department and the Music and Musicology Departments for more courses on these topics. I hope you will think about these questions of representation and of production when you watch films, television, and internet videos, when you listen to music, when you read books or comic books, and when you look at art, whose stories are being told, and by whom. So this is the last episode of Unit 2. Next week, there will be no new material. For McGill students taking this course for credit, writing assignment number two is due on Tuesday, November 2nd at 11.59 p.m. Montreal time, so Eastern time. Quiz number two is, as always, open note and will be released by Wednesday, November 3rd and will be due on Friday, November 5th at 11.59 p.m. Montreal Eastern time. Remember to not discuss the quiz with any students until Saturday, November 6th, once all the quizzes are turned in. There are also the optional TA sessions next week. It's a great time to discuss the materials. All the video songs, images, and graphics used in podcast and transcript belong to their respective owners and I do not claim any right over them. The opening bells on a school bell dot wave from 13F Panska, Stranska, and Michaela, and closing bells from Inspector J's Bell County dot wave of freesound.org. For doing is an exception, Canadian Copyright Act that outlines the permit unauthorized use of copyrighted materials for specific mandate purposes in Canada. These purposes include research, privacy, education, parody, satire, criticism, review, or news report. For research and privacy, education, parody, and satire, no special requirements are required. For criticism, review, and news reporting, the source and author must be named to constitute fair dealing. This is an advertisement-free podcast used for educational purposes.